Give them a round of applause. Yeah. I have to tell you before I start that, you know, pastors pray. And I was doing a lot of praying just a few minutes before that song started. <laughs> Spare the rod and spoil the child. It's an old saying. It refers to discipline, and I'm not sure the saying is even used that much anymore. And that's partially because I think disciplining a child isn't as popular as it used to be. Some supposedly enlightened people believe firm discipline could damage a child's spirit. It could hurt little Johnny's feeling, and Lord knows we wouldn't want to do that. But discipline is about raising kids to become better adults. Discipline, discipline helps adults become better people as well. Discipline helps teach us right from wrong. It shows us that our actions have consequences. Discipline, when properly administered, is all about love. This past week, I talked to a couple moms about discipline. And I want to share with you just a few of the things that, that they said. Now, I'm sure some of that, what they said, is going to be very familiar to you. You either administered similar discipline or you received it. For one, when a young teenage girl refused to come in the house one night after staying out late, her mom called the police. The police put the fear of God into that girl, and she never refused to come in again. One mom told me this, and I happen to know her very well, that she used to carry a wooden spoon tucked in her pants when she took her younger son out shopping. The memory of previous spoonings for bad behavior was a good deterrent to future bad behavior. I learned that sometimes the best discipline is letting your kids fail so they will learn a lesson. Another told me that one boy knew that foul language would be met with a bar of soap in his mouth. Time out and being sent to the room can work for most kids, but it doesn't work for that child who really likes time alone in his or her room. One mom talked to her daughter's teacher about the enormous amount of homework her daughter was bringing home every day. And it turns out this very popular fourth grader used all her free time at school to socialize instead of doing her assignments. So the mom and the teacher made a deal for discipline. Too much socializing meant the little girl had to stay inside during recess. One little boy laughed at his dad after he received a spanking for being defiant. He said, that didn't hurt. The resulting spanking hurt just a little bit more. The writer of Hebrews had, had this to say about discipline that comes actually from God. He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. And don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves. And he punishes each one he accepts as a child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who was never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and not really his child at all. 
Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the Father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best that they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterwards, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. You see, God's discipline for us provides the standard that we use when we discipline others. God's discipline is done for our own good, and most definitely in love. This morning, we're in chapter 5 of our study of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And when Sarah read that passage just a, a few minutes ago, Hearing those words, we might have concluded that Paul's focus was on sexual immorality. And then with maybe a little more focus on pride and greed and idolatry and slander and swindlers. And those are certainly sins that Paul was dealing with at that church at Corinth. And yet, in this part of the, of the letter, in this passage, Paul was really writing on discipline. That was his focus. Paul was teaching discipline for the good of the people and for the good of the church. And as the writer of Hebrews said, discipline is never enjoyable. Church discipline often feels even worse. Church discipline is often neglected, though, even though it's necessary. Church discipline is to be carried out in grace to make the church stronger and to bring the people together. And so with that in mind, let's see what Paul had to say about discipline. And the first thing is this, is that discipline is neglected. Discipline is neglected, I think, more than we might think. And and there's a couple of reasons for this. The first is while most people are very comfortable with the idea of self-discipline, they are uncomfortable with the idea of discipline coming from the outside, coming from another person or an institution. And I think that's because with self-discipline, we're in control. We're working to make ourselves a better person. And if we succeed, of course, we can be proud. If we fail or give up, nobody needs to really know about it. And so we have the power. And it's all about me. And I'm the boss of me. On the other hand, though, discipline that comes from the outside goes against the very way we have been taught to think. We are taught in our culture individualism. We choose what is right and wrong. We decide what we are going to do. We don't need outsiders telling us what to do or telling us especially that we did something wrong. We may never say it, but we think, what right does anyone have to tell me how to live? Or as one of our sons used to say, you're not the boss of me. He said it, but he learned over and over again that it wasn't true. And then, and then second, because of what our culture teaches and what many p- believe about discipline, a, a lot of people are not comfortable correcting someone else's behavior. It, it's so easy to offend people these days. And, and we certainly don't want to offend As a result, we neglect giving discipline. Paul had this to say about neglecting discipline, specifically in the church at Corinth. He said, 
It's actually reported there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you're proud? Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief? Now again, as, as I read that passage, our attention goes directly to what was happening at that time. A son was sleeping with his stepmother. And on one hand, that sounds a little gross. The, we're thinking, you know, the stepmom must have been a cougar sleeping with a man who was much younger than her. But that might not have been the case. You see, women married very young in those days, and it's possible that the dad married a woman much younger than him, and so the stepmom was actually very close to the son's age. Still, this event sounds like it probably came right out of a soap opera or a reality show. And I think we'd all agree it's just a bit creepy. And it makes you wonder what dear old dad thought. Paul said even the pagans, even the people that had no faith at all, knew that what that son was doing was wrong. And as weird as it all seems, Paul's point here was not the sexual immorality that was taking place. Again, his focus was on the church's response to it. He wrote, and you're proud? Shouldn't you have been filled with grief? The church was ignoring the situation. They did nothing. Their thinking might have been, well, you know what? We are free in Christ. We've been forgiven all of our sins. Let the people do as they please. It's not our business. And we do that in the church today. Paul said the church neglected discipline out of pride and out of boasting. They should have been mourning. Maybe they neglected to discipline this man because he was part of a, a prominent family. Calling him out might have offended others in the church, his friends. It was easier to ignore the situation than it was to hit it head on. They wanted to avoid conflict. We neglect this discipline in the church. We do it at work. We do it in our families. We let things slide in the church. We want to be filled with love and grace. And we forget that discipline is a component of love and grace. Now in our families, there are those people we never discipline. They scare us, so we let them live however they want to live. Or maybe we tried many times to correct them, and it never worked, and so we just simply gave up. Or we could be going with the thinking of our culture, and we want our family members to choose their own path of right and wrong. Whatever the reason, we neglect to discipline. And this neglect even happens at work. Now I'm going to start off today by telling you I am not the model for proper disciplining. Discipline can cause conflict, and I'm not the best person at managing conflict. I'm a harmonizer. I want to bring people together. Now that's not to say I will discipline. I will enter into conflict. But my first step is always to try to harmonize and to make peace. Well, I've learned a lot over the years. And it comes from both the corporate world and the church. And what I've learned is this, that discipline is necessary. That's the second point Paul's making here, is he's saying discipline is necessary. I've lived long enough now that I've been in too many situations where discipline was neglected. It wasn't done at all, or it was done in a manner that maybe didn't send the right message. 
as a Christian, as a church, again, we need to be dispensers of grace. And sometimes I think we think that disgrace means we don't firmly discipline. We gently correct. We do it with lots of love. We pray and hope the person will change, and that's all good. We give them second and third and, and fourth chances. We live out our example of faith in front of them, and we're patient. And that's not, that's not bad. But the problem is, some people just don't get it. They see no need to change, and they have no desire to change. Gentle correction and grace work, but they don't work for everybody. Some need a, a swift kick, hard kick in the seat of their pants. Others could, use a bet, could benefit from an attitude adjustment maybe upside their head. But even then, when we're strict and forceful in our discipline, we cannot make a person see their own sin if they don't want to. And Paul provided a direct response to such people. Listen again to what he wrote. He said, shouldn't you have been rather filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Paul said he'd already passed judgment on the man who slept with his stepmom. And then in verse 5, Paul went even further, writing, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Paul then expanded on his list of sins that needed to be disciplined in the Corinthian church. In verses 9 through 11, he wrote, I have written in you my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, but now I am writing that you not, must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, or even a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. In verse 13, at the end of the chapter, he said it very clearly. Expel the wicked man from among you. Paul wasn't pulling any punches. The church needed to remove this man and anybody like him from their congregation. Now Paul wasn't saying that we kick out everyone who made a sinful de decision. The building would be empty. Paul wasn't talking about the person who made a horrible, sinful mistake, either intentionally or unintentionally. He, he wasn't talking about someone being caught in sin and admitting that they had done wrong. Paul here was referring to stubborn, arrogant, rebellious people who refused to even admit that they had done something wrong. They dug in their heels. It, it was as if they were saying, we don't care. We're going to do what we want to do. It doesn't matter what you think. What God's law states are who we hurt, we're going to do as we please. I'll say it again. They were pride-filled and arrogant. They felt they were better than others. And our world, unfortunately, is filled with people like that. And sadly, some of them are even in church. Paul said these folks needed to be removed from the church so that they would realize the seriousness of their sin. But he also put limits to this expulsion. When, when Paul said don't associate or eat with such people, his meaning wasn't exactly what you and I might think. Paul wasn't saying we shouldn't spend time with such people. He wasn't saying that we had to ignore them and completely push them out of our life. Now Paul here was actually talking about something different. The meal that he was talking about that they would eat together was the Lord's Supper or what we call communion. When he spoke of associating, Paul was speaking of meeting in houses for worship. See, the faithful could be friends with those who were under discipline. 
But these arrogant sinners would have to change to be accepted back into the church congregation. Discipline is necessary. The people Paul was speaking of damaged the church. Their presence caused problems. The most severe step in church discipline is to ask someone to leave. And it doesn't happen very often. But there are those times when such severe discipline can be necessary. In, in the workplace, people who break, blatantly break, wo- break rules or refuse to do their assigned work can destroy morale. Such people bring down those who are doing their job. You know, the, the question that can be raised by tolerating such behavior in a person is, from the good workers is, why would I work hard when I see this guy doing exactly whatever he pleases? Or in the church, why would I follow God's law when she openly defies God's words on how to live? And, and the thinking is they're not only doing stuff like that, they're getting away with it. A few poor workers or a defiantly sinful person can ruin an entire workplace It can ruin an entire church. And sadly, it doesn't take many people to do that. Every confirmation class that I've ever taught here at Bethesda has watched the Skit Guys video titled Poop Brownies. And I know there's some of my confirmants out there, and we have watched it already this year, and I've shown this video in church. I'm not going to show it today, but I'm going to tell you about it in case you don't remember. In this video, a little boy approaches his dad about a movie that he wants to go see. And the boy admits that there's some bad things in the movie. Uh, Violence, sex, bad language, and so on. But the boy makes it very, very clear. He said it's just a little bit of violence. It's it's just a a little bit of sex. It's, It's just a little, little bit of bad language. And to his great surprise, his dad says, Well, go ahead, you can go to the movie. But first, the dad wants his son to eat some brownies that he made just for this occasion. The dad makes it clear that the brownies are the same tried and true recipe. He simply added something extra, but just a little bit. The boy, as he's eating the brownie, made several incorrect guesses to what his dad added. And then in a moment of of wisdom, he said to his dad, you know, Dad, you shouldn't mess with perfection. And the dad replied, that's my point. After a few more bites, the dad told his son that he added just a little bit of dog poop to the brownies. And in the video, the boy says, was it the big dog or was it the little dog? (laughs) And the dad says it was the little dog, and the boy said, well, that's a load off. But the boy made the connection. He he said, the next time you don't want me to go see a movie, just say so. Don't feed me poop brownies. Paul wrote it this way in our reading. He said, don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. See, just a little bit of yeast will make bread rise. It's only a fraction of what goes into the loaf of bread, and yet, if you break bread, you know it's essential. And so just a little bit of bad yeast will spoil the entire loaf. Discipline is necessary 
because a little bit of neglected sin in the church can ruin the entire congregation. Discipline, though, is also necessary for the one who is being rebellious and blatantly committing the sin. The discipline is the hope that this person wakes up and sees how wrong they are. It's the hope that they will repent. And that brings us to the third point Paul makes about discipline in this chapter. And that is discipline is nice. Now i got to tell you something. I'm really not too pleased with my choice of the word nice for the third point. You see, I, I, I needed another N-word. I needed for good alliteration. You know, I, I, had, I had neglected, I had necessary, and then I came up with nice. I, I wanted this third point to say discipline includes grace. But that didn't really work. There was no end, so we're stuck with nice. I was so close. If you come up with a better word, though, just please tell me after the service, and if I ever preach this message again, I'll, I'll add that. But all I can say is this, is that it's nice to have grace in our discipline. Bingo. In the case of any hardened sinner or any sinner, discipline is a means of administering grace. Going back to the end of verse 5, Paul wrote this. He said, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Paul wasn't desiring that Satan destroy this man. That's not what he wrote. He wanted the man's sinful nature destroyed. Paul, in essence, was asking for a wake-up call to get the person back on the right track so that his soul would be saved. In the corporate world, we used to call it a come-to-Jesus talk. It was a warning to get your act together before it was too late. And Paul's call was literally a come back to Jesus talk. Paul's desire was that this man and and anyone like him would repent. He was saying, "I'm, I'm afraid for your soul. I'm not sure where you are with Jesus. You know, we we need to have those talks with those that we care about when they're off track and they don't seem to care that they're off track. And then there's one one last lesson I want to share this morning from Paul's words. It's, It's simple, but it's very easily missed in this passage. Paul's, what you might say, harsh discipline was directed at the people in the church, the people who professed to be Christians. He addressed those outside the, verse, outside the church in verse 10. He said, I'm not talking about the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy, or swindlers, or the idolaters. At the end of the chapter, Paul added, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those who are outside. And what Paul was saying here, I think, is that we should be concerned about the morality of our world. That's important. But we can't expect the people who don't know anything about Jesus to live the way God wants them to live. They don't know any better. So we love those outside the faith. We demonstrate the Christian life to them. We tell them about Jesus. And we can even warn them. But we leave the judging to God. It's important to be concerned about our world. I'm not saying that. It's very much something we should do. 
but our first concern should be directed to the people sitting in the pew with us. We work together to help each other deal with our sins. We discipline those in the church who blatantly and without regret go against God. We seek to unite as a body of believers who are focused on our Savior. And we ask God to help us provide necessary discipline with grace, with the goal of bringing us all together in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.